So we're going to wrap up the Sermon on the Mount this morning. Now, the Sermon on the Mount sets the bar so incredibly high when it comes to how to live the Christian life. You know, if you've looked at this along the way, if you've, you've taken time in your own devotional life to read through the text, in the Beatitudes, you, you know that we have seen the character qualities that Christ exemplifies. And, and these are the qualities that he wants us as believers and especially leaders in the church to strive for, to embody. Now, the impact that these qualities that he lays out for us have on the world, when manifested in the church, in each one of us, that culminates in us being what Jesus calls salt and light. And uh, one is the means by which we see, that's light, and the other is something that preserves and increases savor. So, This summarizes basically, I think, our calling in the world to help others see Christ, that's the light, and to preserve what is good and right as we entice people with the well-meant gospel offer. That's the salt. I think that's what we're called to. I think it's really as simple as that. And so uh, Jesus' sermon, he goes on uh, to enumerate more principles and concepts that tell us how to live a life that is fruitful and pleasing to God. But we need to remember that apart from the Holy Spirit indwelling us, none of this is possible. We can't do this in the flesh. We can't, we can't you know, gather up our best college try to be like Jesus. It's just not going to work. Um, you know, praise be to the Father. He's patient with his children. And, and as we learn to live our lives in the power of the Holy Spirit we will no longer be operating in the flesh. Amen? So, so Jesus came to fulfill the law for us, and only he has obeyed the law perfectly. Only Jesus. He calls us to the same, not the religious or ceremonial laws that were for the Jewish nation, but the moral components of God's law. He calls us to this. Instead of leaving us with new stone tablets, Jesus elaborated on the law in his Sermon on the Mount, and when he ascended back into heaven, he sent the Spirit to dwell in us at Pentecost. We're no longer under the law, right? We're, we're free in Christ Jesus, having been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. It's like he told us, it's like he said, I want you to fly. And all of humanity began to flap their arms really, really hard. And nobody got anywhere. So he had to send the Spirit, right? It's like He provides everything for us that he calls us to. And as we go forward in the text this morning, I, just, I want you to be look at, looking for some uh, thematic elements here. I want you to watch for the contrast and the juxtaposition of the temporal, this life, versus eternal I want you to pay attention when Jesus calls us to high standards that are challenging us, and, and, and he's challenges ultimately to remain humble and gracious, not to get self-righteous. And then take note when Jesus is deliberately preparing our hearts for eternity with him. There's a lot of things he says in the text today that, that line up with those three requirements. All of, this, all of this requires that we have wisdom. And so be continually praying that silent prayer, asking the Lord for wisdom and insight as we work through the text this morning. So we're in uh, Matthew 6, uh, depending on which, cop- which copy, which edition of the harmony you have, uh, we're in section 70, which would be Matthew six nineteen to 34. So let's look at the text together, Matthew six nineteen to 34. Jesus is speaking and he says, do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth 
where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be also. This is not an indictment on treasure, by the way, nor is it an indictment against amassing wealth. Now, many people will miss this truth, right? Verse three is not, these, these three verses, excuse me, are about priorities. They're about the temporal, the now, the immediate, versus the eternal, right? The, the later, the forever part. We're so focused on the now, we forget about later. We, we're not typically, even in the American church, people who invest in the later, we're, we're the people who are trying to get it now because we, we believe the culture instead of believing Jesus. And, and so Jesus calls us to generosity in the here and now because what we have in this life is so fleeting. It's so temporal. So he wants us to be generous. If you're struggling with that concept, look closely at verse 20 as Jesus clearly admonishes his followers to pursue and store up treasure, but it's the location of the treasure hoard that's the most important detail, right? It's not treasure here, not treasure buried in your backyard, not treasure in your secret, secret compartment in your basement that nobody knows about. Some of you, some of you are like, he knows, right? It's not that at all. The storehouse for these riches is heaven. It's not here on earth. We're being told to make wise investments in our eternal future as a first priority above even wise investments in this life. We should be planning for eternity. And then he says this in verse 22. Jesus says, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Do you, do you guys, the little nursery song, be, be careful, little eyes, what you see? Who grew up with that song? Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. Do you know it? Yeah. Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. <laughs> Claps, yay. For the Father up above is looking down in love, so be careful, little eyes, what you see. Oh, that was so sweet. That was so sweet. Second verse. There's actually like 10 verses. We're not doing them all, so... Sorry to disappoint. Uh, what, all of that was a setup. Um, what you allow through these windows impacts your spirit and your mind. And even things that you think are benign that don't have an impact can do damage and can introduce ideas and concepts that are new to you that God doesn't want you to be thinking about. So, so your eyes, uh, the scripture says, are the windows to the soul. Jesus is saying, that if you're looking upon what is good and righteous and true, that impacts your mind and your soul for good. And then the inverse is true as well. And, and this is a powerful and much needed admonition to our very visual culture. If you're looking at things that are not good or sinful or, or outside of the parameters of what God calls us to, that affects us as well, Right? And so this is a much needed admonition. We're a very visual culture. And, and Paul echoes this in his letter to the Philippian church. Paul says this in Philippians 4.8. He says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, 
If there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Don't spend your days thinking about all the smut and trash in our culture. Think about the things that are noble and good. Verse 24, for no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. All this has been in the context of resources at this point. And this is the logical conclusion of everything Jesus has said to this point in the Sermon on the Mount. One person cannot serve two masters. Cannot do it. You cannot serve both God and money. Now, some translations have the word mammon. I don't know if you have that translation, but mammon just means stuff. You can't serve God and stuff. So, well, was it money or stuff? Well, money gets you stuff. So it's y- yes. You can't serve God and or in you know the other stuff in this world. So, but here's the point: everybody worships. Period. Every person on the planet from Adam to today, every human being worships something. The only question is what? What do you worship? What do you worship? God made us and designed us to worship, and so we can't help it. We were made to worship. And if we're not going to worship the one true and living God, we worship things. We worship stuff. We worship the things of this world. And so Every human being, every day, all day, every day is worshiping. This is the, the, the great lie of our culture is that, you know, um, if, you, if I just have enough stuff, if I just have enough money, I can buy happiness, I could be content, I would have all the pleasures that I want. But you know what? It's never enough. It's never enough. I've read enough biographies and autobiographies of, of rich people to know that it's never enough. That hole in our heart was only made to be completed and satisfied by the, by the one true and living God. Nothing else will satisfy the human soul. So, so Jesus keeps going. He, he's, just, he's just pounding this point. <clears throat> In verse 25, he says, Therefore I tell you, don't be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, or about your body and what you will put on. Is not this life more than food and the body more than clothing? Just look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. And yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are are you not of more value than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to the span of your life? And why are you anxious about clothing? That sweater is so last season. Consider the lilies of the field. Consider them. Think about this. He says, look at how they grow. They don't toil or spin. And I tell you, even Solomon, the greatest king in terms of riches and wealth and power in the history of Israel, that even Solomon in his glory wasn't arrayed, wasn't dressed like one of these flowers of the field. (laughs) That's crazy. So if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, thrown into the oven. Will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what are we going to eat? What are we going to drink? What are we going to wear? The Gentiles, the pagans, seek after all these things, and your Father in heaven knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all these things will be added unto you. You can trust your dad to do what's right. 
Therefore, uh, verse 34, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. So coming to the end of this first section here, Jesus is addressing anxiety. Um, did, did you know that generalized anxiety disorder affects 6.8 million adults in the U.S. population? Just a general sense of anxiety that pervades the lives of people. Uh, now, I, I looked at a lot of statistics this week. Women are twice as likely to be affected as men, and it often occurs with major depression. Uh, there's another disorder, panic disorder, affects 6 million adults in America. And again, women are twice as likely to be affected as men. And then there's this, there was a whole list of disorders, anxiety-related disorders on the uh, ADA uh, page. And I, and I just pulled like three or four because there were hundreds, hundreds of disorders. Um, social anxiety disorder affects 15 million adults. It's equally common in men and women. It typically begins around age 13. But we, we are an anxious people. That's, that's really what the point is here. We are anxious. And Jesus is saying, you don't need to be anxious. You can, you can have peace. You can be at peace. You don't have to be anxious. I believe that the root cause among professing Christians for our anxiety is that we don't truly believe what the Word of God says about these things, because if we did, we would experience more peace. No, I, I did not say that we'd experience no anxiety. I did not say we wouldn't experience worry at all, but we'd have less of it. Uh, the anxiety and worry is part of a fallen world, part of living in a fallen world, but we need to take Jesus at his word about these things. Life is more than the accumulation of stuff. You know, the American motto has long been, he who dies with the most stuff wins, right? What a sad way to live. I think that drives so much of our anxiety. Jesus uses the illustration of birds. They don't store up mass quantities of stuff, and yet God provides for them. And don't you think that in God's economy that you being made in the image and likeness of God are worth more to him than birds? So, so Jesus says, so then why would you run after all these things? God knows what you need long before you ever know what you need. So don't let the worry of what may be coming in the future wind you up tight, make you stressed out. Trust God, rest in the knowledge that he loves you and that he cares for you and that you're his child. So this linear pro progression is that because God loves you and cares for you, more than the rest of creation because you and I are special creatures made in the image of God. Do you understand that? He loves us more than the rest of creation in that way. Because of that, he will provide for you. He will provide for you. That's not um, humans remain passive. God will do all the active work and provision. That, that's, no, no, no. It's actually redeemed humans engage in good stewardship of your time, talent, treasure, and touch actively, and then God will be active in providing for you what you need in the moment, okay? We're not, to, we're not to be passive, we're to be active, but active in trusting, active in doing, all right? We're called to work, we're called to, to, to take care of our families and our neighbors. Um, so verse 34 is not a prohibition on planning for the future, just, just hold those plans loosely, because God likes to throw the occasional curveball, right? So just hold them loosely and just deal with today. And don't worry too much about tomorrow. Don't worry too much about it. Now, that's, again, not a prohibition on planning 
for the future, but you're holding the, your, your plans loosely. And if you don't get there, if you don't get to that, the, the outcome that you thought you'd have with those plans, don't worry. At the end of the day, you and I don't know the future fully. We, we focus on knowing and drawing close to the one who does. That's the most important piece of this. We're drawing close to God every day and we're knowing him more. That's, that's the goal. So <clears throat> we keep rolling with the text here in Matthew 7, verses 1 through 5. Jesus continues. He says, judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see a speck that's in your brother's eye, but not notice the log in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, hey, let me get that speck out of your eye, when there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you'll be able to see clearly how to take the speck out of your brother's eye. I always get tickled at this when I read this, I just picture a guy with like a log sticking out of his head. I'm like, that's just because I'm visual, right? And I'm just like, hold on one sec. You know, it, it, so we got, we come to, I think this is probably one of the single best known verses in the, in the Bible today. Now, when I was coming up in the 80s, I, I would say probably the best known Bible verse in American culture, Western civilization was John 3.16. Yeah, anybody, hanging in, in the outfield off the, off the rail out there, the banners with John 3.16. Everybody saw John 3.16. Everybody said, God so loves the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him might not perish but have everlasting life. And you could ask Joe Pagan on the street and he could tell you at least part of John 3.16. Now, I think that today that has shifted. I think the most well-known verse in uh, Western civilization today is Matthew 7, 1. And not the whole verse, just the first two words. Everybody knows, judge not. Everybody, every pagan, every sinner, every saint, all know, judge not. And they hurl it at one another all the time. Don't you judge me. Judge not. Scripture says, judge not. Well, okay. Let's talk about that. We've come, we've come to this verse, the single best known verse in the Bible. And, and, and so um, when you take this section that we're in as a whole, you can plainly see this is not a blanket prohibition on making judgments. Jesus is telling us in John 7, 24, do not judge by appearances, but judge with a right judgment. The admonition is not, is to, is to not judge hypocritically. Don't judge people with a wrong standard. Don't judge people out of what you think is best for them or what they should be doing. We are to judge according to, to the word of God. This is why the warning is here in verse two about the standard that you use to judge. It's not a prohibition on judging. It's saying judge rightly. Okay, how can we even begin to discern and know false teachers from true and, and good teachers unless we judge them, test them, evaluate them, and we do it according to the word? If we believe the culture, say, judge not, we just have to listen to Joel Osteen all day and be okay with it. I'm always bagging on Joel, but he deserves it, so it's just okay. And there's a bunch of other false teachers I could name, but I, I, just, I, just, I just love Joel. I just love him so much. Uh, in Revelation 2, Jesus praises the Ephesian church for testing false apostles. It was a good thing that they did for the sake of the body. 
I mean, contrast that with Jesus' scolding of the church at Pergamos in Revelation 2. They, he says to them, they tolerated, there's a, there's a word in our culture, they tolerated those who taught the doctrines of Balaam and the doctrines of the Nicolaitans. Now, time does not permit me to unpack that, go into a lengthy explanation of those doctrines, but I'll just give you the summation. Those doctrines have to do with money and power, respectively, in the church. And Jesus says in no uncertain terms that he hates those practices. So clearly, Jesus expects the church to judge and to judge rightly. He wants us to judge. So what we need to consider uh, is the question, by what standard do we judge? Because when a person, whether they're a Christian or not, uses that phrase, judge not, to try to stop you in your tracks, you need to turn it around. You need to turn it around. And, and here's what I would say to you. If, if, you're, if you're the judge not person and we're having a conversation and you go, judge not, I would say, well, you know, when you tell me not to judge, you're saying that it's morally wrong to judge. And when you appeal to morality, you're making a judgment yourself based on that morality. So when you say judge not, you're actually judging me. Did you know that? And it makes you guilty of the same sin and makes you a hypocrite. Now, what was it you wanted to say to me? When you say judge not, you're judging. You can't escape it. So Jesus says, make a right judgment. Don't just go around saying judge not. You know, 1 John 4, 1, beloved, don't believe every spirit. Test the spirits. Judge the spirits. Discern whether they're from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. And going back to what Jesus said here in John 7, we ought uh, not only to know the word, but our discernment is sharpened as we obey the word. You know, you, you don't need a seminary degree to, to make right judgments about false teachings in the church today. You don't have to have a sociology or anthropology degree to understand what's happening to our culture today. Just read God's word and walk in obedience. And so this section of Jesus' sermon tells us to remove and fix the things in our lives that would keep us from making right or clear or just judgments, and then to go about making those right judgments in the world. So, so judge away, okay? But do it according to the right standard and do it in grace. And, and, and be, be gracious knowing that we, we still deal with sin in our own lives until we're with Jesus. And so we're going we're gonna to judge things rightly. We're going to be gracious to people. Um, but we, we know that the, God has called us to this. And so Matthew 7, 6, the, the next verse, Jesus says, Do not give dogs what is holy, and don't throw your pearls before pigs. I like the pigs better. I, I grew up hearing pearls before swine, but pearls, pearls and pigs has the, the P pop, and I just like it. Don't, don't throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn and attack you. So according to the Old Testament law, both dogs and pigs were ceremonially unclean animals, right? It was common in the time of Jesus to hear the saying uh, that they do not redeem holy things. They, they give it to the dogs. They, they give it to the pigs. Jesus is using this phrase that was really common in his day in a metaphorical sense as both animals tend to trample on and tear their food in the dirt and the mud and are not in any way dissuaded from eating the mud along with whatever the food is, right? And, and in other words, they have no discernment. They eat the dirt with the food. And Jesus' point is that people like this won't hesitate to trample on you either. So beware. Proverbs 26, 11, as a dog returns to its vomit, so a fool repeats his folly. 
the, again, the reference to pigs and dogs is found in 2 Peter 22 when he talks about false teachers. And he says, the proverb is true, a dog returns to its vomit and a sow that washes goes back to wallowing in the mud. And so this imagery is really just is one of those who would ridicule and reject and blaspheme the gospel when it's presented to them. They just go back to being in their filth. This, this doesn't mean that we refrain from preaching the gospel at all. Jesus ate with and taught sinners and tax collectors. In fact, his instruction in Matthew 7, 6 is the same um, Jesus gave to his apostles when he said, if anyone will, will not welcome you or listen to your words, shake the dust off your feet when you leave that town. So we're to share the gospel, but when it becomes apparent that the gospel is not welcome, we move on. Okay? We're responsible to share the good news. We're not responsible for how people respond to the good news. Okay? Pigs don't appreciate pearls. I don't know if you didn't know that. Um, in the same way, some people don't appreciate the gospel. They don't appreciate what Christ has done for them. Jesus' instruction to his apostles on how to handle rejection was to keep moving on and share with others. And then we have this parallel. So we're in the harmony, right? So this has been Matthew. And now in Luke 6, we have this parallel passage. In Luke 6, 37, all the way down to 42, here's what we see. Judge not, and you will not be judged. So, so side by side, Matthew and Luke. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. So again, with all the judging, Luke puts in more of do unto others as, the, as you would have them do unto you. So if you want forgiveness, you need to practice being forgiving. Right? If you, if you want others to be generous, set the example of being generous. This is not the law of attraction, by the way. There's so much false teaching in our culture. Oh, it's not the law of attraction whereby if you fixate on something long enough, intensely enough, you want it badly enough, it will magically come to you. No, 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 no. The universe bends to my will. Uh, no, it doesn't. The universe bends to God's will alone. Now, the, the point of this is to put into practice the things that are true of Jesus, and the result is that you'll get all the stuff you want. No. The result is you'll be more like Jesus. All right? You, you put into practice the things that are true about Jesus so that you become more like Jesus. That's the point. Um, God delights to bless his children, especially when they're representing him accurately. So he goes on, Jesus in verse 39 here in Luke, he says, he also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they, know, will they not both fall into a pit? So a disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone when he is fully trained will be like his teacher. So why, why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but don't notice the log that's in your own eye? How, how can you say to your brother, Brother, let me take that speck out of your eye when you don't even see the log that's in your own eye. You're a hypocrite. First, take that log out of your eye, and then you'll be able to see clearly and take the speck out of your brother's eye. So ministry begins at home. We've, we've, we've dealt with this passage. So I just want to say ministry begins at home. Um, and I don't care if you've been to cemetery, uh, uh, seminary. 
I don't, if, if you're a mom or dad and you're not disciplining your own kids, then you're not, right? So ministry starts at home. So if you're, if you're not raising your children in the fear and admonition of the Lord, if you're not disciplining your children according to God's word, there's no role in ministry at church, right? There's this, this, this concentric circles. Uh, at some point, I'll have to uh, put that on the screen for you guys. Jen was so wise when we started our family. And we had concentric circles of stewardship in our home. And the kids had to master the first circle before they could do things that were in the second circle. And, it, and if things were bad in the first and second circle, they couldn't go to the third. Like, you can't escape to your friend's house because you're having a fight with your sibling. Right? You got to make this right if you want to go play with your friends. So those kinds of concepts and things I think are really important for the church as well. Um, people, people typically want to jump away from conflict and, and not deal with those things. Um, so I just think ministry starts per- personally for you individually and then in your marriage, in your relationships, in your, in your family, and then the church. And so that's, that's really what I think Jesus is bringing to us. Um, so we're to section 71, we're moving pretty fast this morning. I think we're going to finish the Sermon on the Mount this morning. So Matthew 7, 7 to 27. So Jesus says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds and the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which of you, if your son asked him for bread, would give him a stone? Or if, if your kid, if your toddler came up to you and said, Daddy, I want some fish, you'd give him a live snake. Then if you, you who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good things to those who ask him? He's like, man, you don't have to worry that God's going to pull a bait and switch on you. God's not the cosmic killjoy. He's looking for ways, um, he, he's looking for ways to do good to us and to love us. The problem is our definition of good doesn't usually line up with his definition of good. But when it comes to what we actually need, especially regarding the building up of the kingdom and God's storehouse of provision, it's wide open to us when we want to do good and, and build the kingdom. But when it comes to what we, you know, what we want in the moment in our flesh, the door closes. The door closes. But all we have to do is ask him and seek him in prayer. And seek him in his word and knock on heaven's door. He delights to give good gifts to his children and to supply all our needs according to his riches and glory. And so he says here in verse 12, so whatever you wish that others would do to you, so then do, do that to them. For this is the, all the law and the prophets. Just treat people the way that you want to be treated, right? Live in a consistent manner that demonstrates how you want to be treated. It sounds so simple, but I think it's more challenging than we realize because of sin, And how sin just creeps into our lives and and ruins things. But Jesus simply summarizes all of the old covenant. And then he says this in verse 13. He says, enter in by the narrow gate for that, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. There are a lot of people going on the road of destruction. He says, but the the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. So the path is not wide. It's not a wide path. It's not an all-you-can-eat buffet where you can have it all, or, or you could just eat dessert only. I, I don't know why that came up in my mind all of a sudden. That sounds, that sounds heavenly. I don't know. It's just, just desserts all the time. But this, the, the eternal way, the, the way to eternal life is a narrow way. 
And, and isn't that the accusation that's hurled at us as Christians, as the church? You're so narrow-minded. You're so narrow. Yeah, Jesus was too. Jesus is not tolerant of our lifestyle choices. Jesus is narrow when it comes to any other arrangement than one man and one woman, as we saw last week. See, the longer that this world persists in sin and rebellion, the more narrow Jesus is going to seem to the culture. And, and so in, in view of all the humans that have ever lived from Adam to Eve to the ending of the age, the majority reject God for their own accord because they don't want to be confined to a narrow way. They want to have all the options. They want the buffet, right? And so Jesus says, you can have that, but there's a price to pay. And so verse 15, he says, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ravenous wolves, and you'll recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every tree bears good, every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a diseased tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. I would just say to you, Christians need to be fruit inspectors. <laughs> you need to, you need to, you know, you need to inspect the fruit in the lives of people, teachers you listen to. Okay? That's a very important thing. It especially applies to those who come into the church as pastors, teachers, evangelists, pro, you know, prophets, apostles. Don't get me started on those titles. Um, the, the, the tell, the tell is not necessarily what they say. The tell is how they live their lives. Because for some false teachers, the issue is actually what they refuse to say. Like, I don't know, something crazy like Jesus is the only way to get to heaven. There's some, some pastors that have huge ministries in the United States that refuse to say Jesus is the only way to be saved. That's crazy. Jesus is explicit in this warning. And yet it's amazing to me how many Christians here in our culture continue to flock to people, flock to churches that don't pass the smell test. When you peel back the veneer, you begin to see and smell that the fruit is rotten. And that's what Jesus calls us to discern. Take a look at the fruit. What's happening over there? Is that, is that good fruit? Not everyone, verse 21, who says to me, Lord, Lord, is going to enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I don't know you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I, I think that's probably one of the most scary verses in the whole Bible. That's frightening. Because the people who showed up, who heard Jesus say that, did not expect that at all. They didn't expect that. And this flows right out of these previous verses of these same false teachers, these same, same false prophets are using the name Jesus, but they've got somebody else in mind other than the biblical Jesus. And Jesus is either Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. There's no middle ground here. There's no middle ground. And all of this is the result of the previous passage dealing with false teachers who, who preached half gospels or health and wealth, health and wealth gospels. You know, I just, I, every time I just love him so much. And the, and, and the result of the preaching of false gospels in those churches, many don't actually have salvation in those churches because they never heard the actual gospel preached. And on that day when they stand before God in judgment, they're going to be shocked 
I, it makes me cringe just a little bit. I see some, sometimes on YouTube some of the street preachers who go to some of these big churches and they preach as the people are coming into church. They preach to them the, go, the gospel. And just, oh, man, oh, it makes me feel awkward. And, and oh, But they're not getting the gospel inside. So I'm, I'm telling you, um, on that day when they stand before God in judgment, they're going to be shocked. They did all these things in the name of Jesus, but they never put their faith in Jesus, not the true Jesus of Scripture. So verse 24 says, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house upon the rock. And the rains came and the floods came and the winds blew and beat upon that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like the foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rains fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell. And great was the fall of it. There's, there's nothing at all enigmatic or mysterious about this statement. It's so plain. It's really quite simple. Having heard the words of Jesus, the words of life, you will either build your house on the rock of King Jesus or you will build your life on the shifting sands of culture and man's best ideas about life. Those are your only two options. One worldview stands the test of time, the other does not. One worldview accounts for all that we see and all that we cannot see, the other does not. So if you put your weight down on Christ Jesus and a biblical worldview, you will stand on the day of judgment. But if you put your weight down on anything else, you will fall. You, everything you've labored for in this life will come crashing down around you on your way into the lake of fire. Everybody chooses. Everybody chooses. Not everybody chooses wisely. And then similar context in Luke, and we'll, we'll go through this really quickly as we've covered this. Luke 6, 31, uh, Luke says... And, and as you wish that others would do unto you, so do unto them. No, no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is known by its fruit. Figs aren't, are not gathered from thorn bushes. Grapes are not picked from bramble bushes. The good person out of the good treasure of their heart produces good. The evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And Jesus says, why do you even call me Lord, Lord, and then not do what I tell you to do? Everybody who comes to me and hears these words and does them, I will show you what that person's like. It's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when the floods rose and the stream broke against the house, and it couldn't shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears the words of mine and doesn't do them is like a man who built his house on the ground with a, without a foundation. And the stream broke against it and immediately it fell. And that house, the ruin of the house was great. It came crashing down. And so we've, we've covered that word picture already. So we'll go ahead to Matthew 7, uh, 28. When Jesus finished all these sayings, he finished the saying, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as their scribes. The crowd was astonished and probably the apostles as well. But the apostles had come, they'd had some experience with Jesus already, which is why they were his disciples. It's why he had appointed them as apostles. But the crowd that's gathered for the Sermon on the Mount there on the side of that mountain, they're just there kicking the tires on Jesus. They're just trying to check this Jesus thing out. And these people were astonished. They were so impressed. 
They were so surprised by what Jesus had just said. They were amazed at the experience they had just had. And I love how Matthew draws that contrast. Jesus was teaching them as one who had authority, not like their scribes. It's like, whew, man. All the people were tired of all the teachers and leaders quoting other teachers and leaders who had come before them. They were desperate to know what God said, what God wanted, but the teachers weren't teaching that. And Jesus taught with authority because he was the word of God made flesh. The word contains in itself sufficient authority to accomplish what it claims it will do. I'll give you one, one passage. There are many. Let me just read Isaiah 55, 10 and 11 to you. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven. Here's the picture, right? Rain and snow coming down out of heaven. And they do not return, but that they water the earth and make it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. God says, so shall be my word that goes out of my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it accomplishes all for which I purpose and succeeds in the thing for which I sent it. It's just a picture of the water coming down from heaven. You know, the hydrological cycle. And it runs into the rivers and streams and the, those flow into the ocean and then the water evaporates again into the clouds and then the clouds come over land and then they drop the water and it's, a, it's this endless cycle. And God's saying, that's the picture of my word coming. It, it accomplishes what I want it to accomplish. And so if I could just quickly summarize the ground we covered today, there's so much on judging and obeying, and I just want to drive those two points home. Number one, judge rightly. As you go from this place today, wherever you find yourself this week, make a right judgment. I want to drive the nail on that coffin of judge not. Ugh. I never want to hear that phrase come out of your mouth unless it's in jest and then only to annoy me. That's okay. And only in a limited capacity. Like you get two times per week per person and that's it, okay? Because every time I preached on that in the past, where's Kevin? Kevin's made sure, don't even shake your head. You know what I'm talking about. Everybody's like, hey, Pastor Mike, judge not, right? Oh, okay. You get two a week. That's it. All right. <laughs> God's word... <laughs> <laughs> I love you. We'll chat after church. Um, I, I just don't want to hear that, that phrase like when you, when you mean it, like, oh, pastor, don't judge people. I'm going to be like, oh, my heart hurts for you. Um, God's word tells us to judge, to judge with the right standard. God's word tells us that there are areas of life where we're not to judge as well. Can I just give you a quick sum summation of those? We're not to judge the motives or the hearts of other people, according to Jeremiah 17. We don't even know our own hearts most of the time. So we can't judge someone's unseen motives. Pfft, that's a bad move. We're not to judge brothers and sisters in Christ when it comes to personal holiness, according to 1 Corinthians 4. All believers are continually growing in holiness, so it's not right to compare one person's holiness to another and say, well, you're not really holy. Every believer is in process, okay? It's not good for us to, uh, to judge on matters of conscience, according to Romans 14 or Colossians 2. When the word doesn't give us a clear, clear direction on something, there's liberty within reason. I'm not, not liberty to sin, but there's liberty on that issue, right? Everything else is on, up on the table, so judge well. Judge with the right judgment. So, so judge rightly. Make a right judgment. Here's the other thing I would say as we close this morning. Obey the word. Man, you want to you just hone your power of discernment 
in the world today. You want to be able to talk to people just so easily and the gospel come out of your mouth as you're having a conversation. You want your, your words to be seasoned with salt. You need to be in the word. You need to obey the word. It's not just, just don't do like 18 Bible studies this week, okay? Because that's all just information. That information has to be processed and used for us to grow in Christ's likeness. We've got to obey the word, not just know the word. Satan knows the word, okay? He knows it better than all of us. Hadn't made any difference in his character at all, okay? So Jesus asked this rhetorical question. Why do you call me Lord if you're not going to do what I tell you to do? You could win every Bible quiz competition. You may have memorized many verses and understand heavy theology and still be unregenerated. It's unlikely, but it's possible. I mean, the telltale sign of a truly blood-bought, born-again Christian is not Bible knowledge or the mastery of theology. The thing that marks the life of a true believer is obedience. It's obedience. So John 14, 15, Jesus said, look, if you love me, keep my commandments. So my question to you is this morning, are you? Are you? Judge well and do the word. Obey the word. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this Sermon on the Mount. It's, I don't know about anybody else here at Emmaus Road, but it has been challenging for me. And I, Lord, we just take this moment to submit ourselves to you afresh. Having heard your word for these weeks in the Sermon on the Mount, having, having been challenged, every one of us in some capacity, Lord, we want to just stop and yield to you and ask you to work your grace into our hearts and into our character. Um, sharpen us as instruments that you want to use in the world. And Lord, help us to walk in righteousness and honor you with all that we say and all that we do. And even more importantly, all that we think and feel. Lord, we just trust you for these things. There's, a, there's an element of our flesh that has to be brought into submission. There's an element of will in us that, that has to want this, but there's also an element of your spirit that we can't do this without. And so, Lord, we just ask you, be gracious to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus calls us higher, upward and inward, Aslan would say. Further up, further in, to be more like Jesus, more like himself. And he gives us the power of the Holy Spirit to, to help us in that adventure, in that calling as we move towards Christ-likeness. Remember this week, and as you go forward, make a right judgment. Practice discernment. Hone that skill. And above all, don't simply be hearers of the word. Be doers of the word. Be obedient to God's word. Those things will guard us in the days ahead. Emmaus Road Church, I love you. You are sent.